This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April, May, April, May. It is May. Dad gun it, it is May the 14th, 2019. And this is episode 2438 of the Survival Podcast. Today's episode is called Walking to Freedom and or escaping the rat race. Um, long ago, I coined the term walking to freedom to explain the concept of movement within the republic. Some of the states that seem the most oppressive, such as California, New York, and Illinois, are uh, easy to escape from. I mean, really, this isn't like the days of the Soviet bloc in Europe. There's no Berlin Wall keeping you inside the shithole that is New Jersey. Before you get upset, I was born there. I get to say whatever I want about the place. All it takes is some planning, a U-Haul truck, and a new destination. Today we're going to discuss the concept of walking to freedom that way, and another way as well. Consider my property, for instance. Where I live, I can pretty much do anything I want. Anything short of cooking meth, nobody's bothering me. I have built three sheds since coming here, done two major remodels on parts of our house, a complete kitchen remodel, some living room remodeling, built a complete outdoor kitchen, put in... A big, giant overhead, 20-foot span, roof. Permit? We don't need no stinking permits here, seriously. Uh, where I live, they don't even exist. Like, if you say, like, I need to get a permit, they're like, what are you talking about? We don't do that. I don't even have building codes. Honest to God, there's no building codes where I live. I can do anything I want. Once or twice a year, as you guys know, I have anywhere from 25 to 75 people camping on my property for five days. It looks like a miniature free, what is that thing called, uh, like Woodstock, but the new one, Lollapalooza or whatever. That's what it looks like here. i got people drinking, hanging out at campfires. No one cares. And if they did care, it wouldn't matter. There's zero recourse that they have. If they call the sheriff's department, they're going to tell them, this is not what we do here. We can't help you. In fact, I would say, that as far as my property goes, not the totality of taxes in the state of Texas or anything, we're talking about things like that today, but as, as, as far as my property goes, in being able to do whatever I want on my own piece of property, I probably have as much freedom as you could have almost anywhere in the country. Probably not, you know, if you're making a list of the top 100 spots, I probably wouldn't be number one. But I'd probably be in the top 10 to 20, and there'd be so little difference in that extreme end that it wouldn't even matter. Now, this is something that's interesting. I don't live out in the sticks. <laughs> If I were to get in my car, like right now, it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. There's not a lot of traffic right now. I can be in downtown Fort Worth in 20 minutes. If the traffic's picked up, it's still about 30 minutes till I'm downtown. And it's, it's not even like some people think 30 minutes is pretty far, but it's not 30 minutes of interstate. It's 30 minutes of back road with a lot of stoplights. I'm literally by road. I checked it on Google Maps so I could be accurate to the absolute center of downtown Fort Worth from my house, 13 miles. 13 miles. I mean, that's something you can do on a bike if you really want to in not that much time. And I can do anything I want. But two miles away in a town called Lakeside, with a population of only about 1,300 people, they don't have HOAs because they don't need them. 
because the, the, the regulations of the town make it like an actual state government-run HOA. One guy I know actually got a ticket for parking his Corvette on his own lawn less than two miles from my house. He was selling it. He had a corner lot out by the main drag, so he parked it on like a 45-degree angle with a sign that said it was for sale. One of his neighbors called the police. They came out and wrote him a ticket for parking his car on his own grass. You know, freedom might be for you a few states away. It might be completely on the other side of the country. Or it might just be one state away. Maybe it's just crossing one state border. Maybe it's a few counties away. Or maybe it's even just across the street. Think about if you lived in that town called Lakeside or a little further down in a town called Lake Worth. If you lived there, how much could you change as far as walking to freedom by moving three or four miles to the area I live in that's unincorporated, just by making that subtle, small change. So it's not always that whenever we relocate for more liberty that we have to move across the whole country. The key today that we're going to focus on is while liberty is universal, it means something different to everyone when it comes to how we actually put it into practice. To some people, probably a lot of people listening to me today, it would be something like having the freedom to have a few chickens in your backyard. But to other people... Freedom would be the ability to have a place that they can live where their neighbor doesn't have chickens making a bunch of noise just over the fence. Now, I don't understand the second type of person. I really don't. But they have as much right to find a place to their liking as I do. The problem has become that there are plenty of places for people like that and not so many for people like us. But that's why we are also so blessed to live in a country that is so freaking big and so diverse from a cultural and a climate angle both. What you want, you can find in the U.S. The key is, before you even start looking, you really needed to define exactly what that is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about all types of things to do with that. We're going to really start out, though, with what exactly is freedom to you and making your own liberty checklist so that if you're going to walk to freedom, you're actually walking to freedom. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When I had no sponsors, when I only had about 100 listeners, Vic Rontala from Safe Castle reached out to me and said, we want to sponsor the show. I told him no. I told him to check back with me in about six months. Let me build this up so when I take your money, I'm actually helping you. I'm actually doing something good for you. Because I don't want a relationship with a sponsor where uh, it's like Little League and you put your name on kids' shirts and you know it'll never matter, but you do it just to help out. It's not what I was looking for in sponsors. About six months later, you know, I had about 2,500 listeners. I said, Vic, I think I can help you. We rolled out the sponsorship program. They were our first sponsor. That was in 2009. It is 2019. They are still with us. That is loyalty and everything you need for your prepping needs from the practical to the tactical and everything in between. You'll find it at Safe Castle, and they'll give you their premium membership, which gives you discounts on everything they sell for free if you're an MSB member. They sell that membership for about 30 bucks a year. You get it for a lifetime for free just by being an MSB member because that's how much they support us. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is awesome because they let anybody, even a person as limited in capability as me, get started in the hobby and or business of making knives. You can start out with exactly what the company sounds like, a knife kit. 
that's a blank and some handle material and stuff like that. Really easy to get started with. Get it built out, finish the handle, vinyl fit and stuff like that. Or you can get raw materials and build knives from the ground up and everything in between. They got a lot of other cool stuff like kydex and leather for making sheaths. Tons of cool stuff. Check them out. Again, knifekits.com. Another company has been with us like eight years. We have the most loyal sponsors in podcasting. I'm going to tell you that. I, I defy anybody to tell me a show that has more than five sponsors who've been with them more than five years as a podcast. As a, that, and that's all they are. It's not a radio host that's across the whole country that also has a podcast. A, po a standalone podcast with five companies been with them five years. We're better than that. But that's because our sponsors are so damn loyal and so damn good. So check out our sponsors whenever you need anything. And remember, whenever you need anything, also check out the MSB and see if you can get a discount on it and consider becoming a member and help supporting the show. With that, let's go ahead and uh, do a history segment today. Um, a guy named Todd sent me some bullet points, and I'm just going to read the bullet points. These are all things that happened this week in history. Here we go. In 1959, the North Vietnamese Army begins organizing the Ho Chi Minh Trail, According to the U.S. National Security Agency, or NSA, the system of supply routes used by the Viet Cong was one of the greatest achievements of military engineering of the 20th century. Um, in 1796, the first smallpox vaccination is administered. The British physician Edward Jenner successfully inoculated an eight-year-old smallpox patient using material from a cowpox lesion. The word vaccine is derived from the Latin word for cow, uh, vaca. Next up, in 1940 this week, the first McDonald's fast food restaurant opens. Maurice Mack and Richard Dick McDonald open McDonald's Barbecue in San Bernardino. Today, McDonald's is the world's largest fast food chain. And I'll throw in this little factoid, other than the Catholic Church, the largest holder of real estate in the world. Um, if you think McDonald's is in the hamburger business, you're wrong. They're in the real estate business. Uh, 1960, Theodore Mainman fires the first functional laser, the American physicist's invention and advancement of earlier research by scientists in the U.S. and the Soviet Union was patented in 1967. In 1959, this week, the North Army begins organizing. I already read that, so that was in there twice. Uh, in 1796, we have a... We have the same thing. It's he's doubled it. I sorry guys, there that's what we got for you this week. I will tell you also something that happened this week. In nineteen eighty five, Philadelphia police bombed a home. This is a true story. They bombed a home, a residential home, they dropped a bomb on it like like in war. Now there was a, a black liberation group called Move and uh, they were kind of holed up in this house in West Philadelphia. And uh, But in 1985, they dropped a bomb. And, uh, again, this is a residential area that this happened. You can look this up if you want to. They, they got C-4 from uh, FBI or CIA, I don't remember which, took a police helicopter, uh, made a satchel bomb, and dropped it on the house. Now, these were people that were holed up in there. There was gunfire going on. It wasn't like they just bombed them out of nowhere. But there were kids present in this home, and they weren't going nowhere. Uh, it ended up, the bomb killed uh, 11 deaths, including the founder of movement named John Africa, five adults and five children between the ages of 7 and 13, and the mayor that ordered the bombing knew they were there. Um, it destroyed houses and burned others. In fact, 61 houses were destroyed 
when the Philadelphia police bombed a residential home in 1985, May 14th this week. Do you, kiddies, did you learn about that in history? We learned about it in current events because I'm just that old. So there's a little history segment for the week. Let's get on into the show. Again, we're talking about walking to freedom today. And what I want to start out with, if this has been going in, on in your head, I need to get out of here, I need to go somewhere else, I need more freedom, whatever it is. Do you want to move, and if sure, if so, why? And make sure you really do. Before I do the show, I just kind of feel like an obligation to point this out. There are a lot of people in the world today that are unhappy. They're unhappy for a variety of reasons. And it's easy to convince ourselves, if only this, that I would be happy. If only I was not living in this city, this town, this state, this place, with these people near me, whatever, I would be happy. And the truth is, to make the right decision, you need to find a way to be happy. Maybe not as happy as you can be, because that's a totally different thing. I'm basically happy, but I think I could be happier if. If you're just miserable all the time, you have other problems other than your geography. I'm not saying that a geographic change might not help. But I'm going to say that if that's you, then even after you move, you're going to have a lot of work to do. So you might want to figure that out first to make sure that's what you're really looking for. Because what I've seen from a lot of people is they become convinced of this. They sacrifice an awful lot to move. They go somewhere and they're still not happy. In fact, in many ways, they're less happy because there were actually some things they really liked about where they were. And because they were so miserable, they didn't realize what those things were. So I think that one of the things that you need to do if you're thinking about moving whether it's across town, across state, across county, or across country, is start out with what you do like about where you are. There's probably something. There's probably something. It might be family. It might be church. It might be friends. It might be weather. Uh, it could be your job. Some people love their job. Not everybody hates their job. There's attitude people have, like, jobs suck. And jobs are pretty good. Right? I mean, if you, especially if you don't want to be an entrepreneur, then jobs are great. You just need to find the right one. So I think you should really start out with everything you do like about where you're at and figuring out what could you do to be as happy as possible where you are. Now, that may not sound like a big impetus for moving, but assuming you can find things that you like and things that do make you happy and you, you can begin to put together a plan to make things better where you are, what it will show you is the limitations you're truly dealing with. And that will help you make the decision about whether or not moving is right for you and how radical that move really needs to be. Because the next thing we're going to start working on, once we kind of make a list of all the things we do like about where we're at, and I think this is a good thing for anything. Like, even if you think you hate your job, write down everything you like about your job. If you can't come up with one thing you like about your job, you need a new job. Really, I mean, there's usually something people like about their job. Sometimes jobs don't pay well, but they offer a lot of freedom. Sometimes jobs pay well and offer very little freedom. And in both of those situations, there's trade-offs, right? Um, but what we need to do next, once we figured out like what we, what we do like about where we are, what those limitations are, we need to start defining freedom. The impetus for this type of a move is for freedom. And there's multiple types of of freedom when we start understanding this. There's the freedom as in it, you, you, there's nothing that the state can do or your neighbors can do to prevent you from taking the actions that you want to. That's one type of freedom. But then the other freedom is the ability to do so. 
So you can move out in the middle of nowhere, but if what you really want is a house with electricity and you don't have the money to bring a line in that far, you don't have the freedom to have that because you don't have the resources to get it done. And it's important that we find kind of what that balance really is. And there's a lot of other things like that. For me, for instance, like I said, I can do pretty much anything I want. There is absolutely 100% nothing that legally prevents me from shooting guns on my property. And with some limited you know, angles and things like that, I will use things like a .22 on the property to take out a uh, pest or vermin or something. But I don't just go out and just recreationally shoot. I'm certainly not going to be banging away with my .30-06. Again, there's nothing legally preventing that action. But morally, it's not safe. I have neighbors in all directions. There is no really safe place to be out here discharging a .30-06. Now, I could put in a berm, and that would give me that freedom. It also would take away certain things. Like, there's not really a good place on the property to do it. And it's just not really, I don't think it's moral, because I do have neighbors on both sides of me now, to be that loud. I just don't think that's the right thing to do to my neighbors. It's not the appropriate place for it. Now, if, if I could make it safe and they were that close, and once a year I was doing it to shoot a deer, then they can deal with it. But you have to figure out those limitations. Financial, physical, moral, etc. And you have to find what those limitations are so that we can make our liberty checklist and prioritize things based on what's really important to us. Again, I said a lot of people in this audience would probably like to be able to keep chickens or ducks or some form of poultry. Is that on your list? If that's on your list, is that a... I need this in my life to be happy, or I'd like this in my life to be happy. Because I think as you make this list, you really need to make three categories. And it might be easier to just jot everything down and then go back and you know give a star to the things that are absolutely necessary, give a check mark to the things that you really want, and give a, a dash to the things that you know would be nice to have. But those are the categories. So whether it's three columns whether it's three different pages and when you flip between them, you really need to make that list for yourself because I can't tell you what that is. You might be like, you know what, I don't want anything to do with chickens or ducks. I don't care. I don't care if my neighbors have them, but I don't want to take care of them. That's okay. You don't have to have chickens, right? You might be someone that, like, your entire life, what you've wanted to be able to do is go out and shoot guns in your backyard. So I, I put that in, I would really like to have category, Really like to have, not nice to have, really kind of really want it, but I don't have to have it. I was willing to settle for that one. You may not be willing to settle for that, so you may need to find a property where either you can do it now uh, or legally you will be able to do it, and all you need to do is make some modification. It gives maybe a shooting berm or something like that to make it safe. And you need to figure out what they are because I can't, this is the thing about liberty, and this is why people struggle with what liberty really is all about. I can't define what liberty is to you. We can define the concept of liberty, and that is the ability for people to live as they choose so long as they are not harming or impeding upon another human being. So if you want to spend your days high as a kite until you blow up your brain on some kind of psychedelic drug, as long as I don't have to pay for it, and as long as you're not stealing my TV to fund your habit, I don't care. It's not my business. People struggle with that. People struggle with that, but what will make you not struggle with it is when you start defining liberty for yourself and say, what do I really want? So I think you need to make that liberty check checklist, and you need to understand exactly what you're looking for. 
And then we need to go back to all the things you like about where you are and say, well, what's actually missing, and can that be corrected? Because sometimes the situation is something simple. A few modifications, I don't even have to go anywhere. Or maybe I don't have to go as far as I thought I did. As this discussion happens with people, I find one of the main drivers of this is taxes. And when we look at tax implications, we cannot look at income tax alone. We have to look at what we call a tax footprint. So you're going to pay the federal government, no matter where you live, pretty much the same money, especially now with the salt cap on the tax code uh, and the new tax code. It pretty much it has increased federalism, whether you like Trump or not, it has, in that it has removed advantages from living in really high-tax states. So, yeah, I'm paying out the nose and property tax, but I'm deducting it all from my, my federal income tax. So it's somewhat of a wash. So they've taken that kind of thing away and, and let federalism be more of what it is. So when a state is really stupid about how it taxes people, they're more likely to leave now. And that's definitely happening in places like Illinois and California and New York few other places too, but those three really have an exodus going on because people now feel the full pain of what their states are doing to them. But you can't just say, well, if I move to Texas, for instance, then I'm going to have a, a really low uh, tax footprint because they don't have a state income tax. And I live in a state now where I'm paying 12% state income tax. Maybe, maybe it's going to work out for you. But Texas has two taxes that are in general higher than most other states. The first is our sales tax. And it will range 8 to 8.25% in most parts of the state. Now, where I live, if you can find a place to do business, since we're incorporated, there is no local sales tax, and it's 6%, which is the state portion. Local governments, county governments, etc., put in additional overhead on the sales tax. That's why it will range between 8 and 8.5, 8 and a quarter, somewhere in there. So that's a fairly high sales tax. Of course, that tax applies only to spending. And in the state of Texas, we do not pay sales tax on labor. So if you have a construction job done, you'll pay tax on materials but not labor. Uh, we also do not pay sales tax on food unless it is prepared food. So if you go buy a pre-cooked chicken, you pay sales tax on it. But if you go buy a frozen chicken, you do not. So there are some areas that that sales tax doesn't encroach on. What we have, I wouldn't say high nationally, but moderate in, in, in the grand scheme of things, is, is property tax. Our property taxes are high compared to even hell holes like California. So you have to look at where would I live, what kind of taxes I'm going to pay, and you have to look at that full footprint so that you don't deceive yourself into believing by making this move I'm going to have more money. Or by making this move I'm going to have so much more money that I can take a cut and pay and still have more money. You might very well be able to do it. And you know what I'm going to say, Excel never lies, so you need to get actual numbers plug them into a spreadsheet, and see what does this move really mean for you. So we need to look at what we're looking for from a liberty standpoint, what we like about what we have and what we're missing and what we want. The things that, if we're going to go through all this crap, that are drop-dead, I have to have them, that are, I really, really would like this, and that are actually nice to have. Right? And then how can I design the move and the choice so I can get as much of that as I want, because I'm going to tell you something, you're probably not going to get it all. There's going to be something that you're going to give up. And that's why it's really important to make sure that you have that list of, these are drop-dead, I am not giving these things up, these are what, some of the drivers of why I'm doing this in the first place. And these are things I'd really, really, really like. And I might not be able to, to be willing to sacrifice them all, 
But if there's like, let's say, ten of them, and I can get all my must-haves, and four of my I really wants, and right now I have zero of really wants, and very little of must-haves, well then maybe moving makes sense. And at least I know why I'm doing it, why I'm asking my family maybe to do it with me. Next, I want to talk about just the basic types of property. Now, I could probably come up with 20 types of properties. I'm trying to be as top line as I can because each of them does have things that you give up and things that you gain. They have pluses and minuses. The first one is the, is the, is the type of property most people in America live in, even if you're more into rural communities, etc., but they would be what you'd call urban and suburban neighborhoods. This is where when you walk out on the street and you look around, you see more than half a dozen houses. And if you don't, it's because you're on a cul-de-sac and trees blocked the way, but if you walk out the end of that cul-de-sac, there's houses all over the place. And they're laid out in some sort of a grid, and they are the typical house most people live in. Most people would say, that's exactly what I want to get away from. But the truth is, people like living that way. If they didn't like living that way, there wouldn't be about 80 million homes built that way in America today. So you might actually find a place where that type of lifestyle makes sense. You know, again, we've talked a lot about permaculture and small-scale design, and a lot of people, if they can find it, let's say, a half acre, and most of it's backyard, even in the suburbs, as long as there's not restrictions infringing upon the things that you are must-have, want to do, it might have a lot of advantages. It might have a lot of advantages. You have neighbors and communities important. If you have kids, then it's going to be a lot easier for them to find other kids to play with and be involved with. That doesn't mean you can't find that further out, but it, it does mean that you have to look at that aspect of it. You might find that living fairly remote might make your spouse miserable. Living suburban-urban might make your spouse happy. So what you really need is how can you get all the things you really want? How can you get as many things as you can on your must-have list with that going along with it? Because maybe that's what's necessary to keep the family strong. The next are the, probably the worst. And sometimes they can look like they really have a lot of potential, and a lot of times you'll find there's massive restrictions that have no, that make no sense to being there. They're what I call planned communities. Uh, in Texas, we have an awful lot of them springing up around lakes, and they'll be anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours out of either the downtown Fort Worth area, the downtown Dallas area, or one of the more developed areas of what they call like the mid-cities or the like Richardson Plano Tech area, Frisco area. They'll, the, the, these, we have lakes everywhere around here. So what they'll do is they'll get a whole big slew of land, a lot of it on the lake and a lot of it right next to the lake. They'll put in a marina. They'll throw in a boat slip. And you go out, and they're selling properties anywhere from, like, a lot of times one-acre lakefront. But if you, don't wanna, if you don't insist on being on the lake, you'll have a private area, which comes with dues, but you have your own boat slip, boat ramp, and, like, a community swimming pool and all that shit. And you have, like, five acres And it looks really rural, and it is. You know, there's not a big town right there. There might be a little town or something built up around it. But, you know, you're, if, you're, if you're working still in the city, you're driving an hour, hour and a half to work every day. And you would think if you're living, and a lot of people are living there as a vacation home, a getaway place, whatever, you'd think, well, out there, you know, five acres of land, the houses are spread out. A lot of times even the roads are like gravel roads and stuff. Well, shit, you know, nobody's going to get bitchy if I have a chicken. Uh, no. A lot of them have POAs, can't have a chicken. 
One we looked at, we, we considered buying the lot and building on when we moved back to Texas. It was a 10-acre plot. It was reasonably priced. It had a lot of the crap we're talking about. We're driving in, and we see this big, beautiful fence and two horses walking around. Well, I started to get excited. Well, turns out you can have a horse but not a damn chicken. Seriously. Okay, what else is limited here? Oh, well, you know, anything you want to do, you need to get the a property owners association to approve. Like what? Like a fence. Like a shed. Stop. We're done. But I was going to... No. No. We're done. I'm done. So to me, planned communities have potential. But as soon as you start going down that road of, of, of limitation and control, it'll probably kill off all of the good you thought you could get out of it. Then you've got what I call truly rural property. What I mean by truly rural property is I wouldn't refer to it as farmland, and I wouldn't refer to it as very remote. So we're not out in a, a flying cabin in Alaska or even something that we just need a four-wheel drive to get to, like where Gary Collins' small house is up in Washington. It's rural, and you don't have a, a, a suburban neighborhood around you. But, you know, there's a guy down the street and a guy up the street, and there's a town over there. A lot of times, these properties are primo for the type of thing that we're looking for. They give a spouse or family members that want more community access to that. And yet, you're far enough away that people leave you the hell alone. You have to be careful, though. You have to really look at the restrictions that might exist, because you look around and you see things, kind of like I was talking about, With uh, the horses. You see a horse, you'd think, well, if I want to own a freaking chicken, and this dude's got two horses you know, t taking a dump in front of me on the way in, then who the hell's going to have a problem with my chickens? And, and who the hell's going to have a problem with me putting in a fence? You know, and <laughs> So you got to look, because what I've seen is some of these properties that are exactly what I'm describing, that some counties have restrictions, even in what we'd call unincorporated land, county-level restrictions. That include things like, can you build a shed? We have one guy in the air. Couldn't build a shed. Couldn't build a shed uh, because it had to be a certain distance from the house and a certain distance from the property line and didn't have the room to do it. Talked to another guy recently. Same type of situation. He wanted to put a shed in. He wanted to put a great big 16 by 24 shed in, and they told him he could put a shed in. Okay? But I think it was something like, 12 by 12 was the maximum size or something like that. Whatever it was, it was about half of what he wanted to do he was actually able to do. And no good reason for it. None. Just like no good. And there's like dumpy sheds. Neighbors have dumpy looking nasty sheds. Yeah, but they were here when we passed this ordinance, so they got grandfathered. So you really got to check. And if you get someone to tell you something's okay from a local office or something like that, You need to get that person's name, the time you talk to him, and you need to call and talk to somebody else and reconfirm that. If it's if it's on your, I got to have this thing. We had someone, Sweet Peace Farm or something like that. We tried to help out with Legal Defense Fund years and years ago. That when she moved in, she called and they said, "Yeah, you can do these things." Well, then she started doing it, and they said, "No, you can't." So that wasn't a, a, a like people often say that. Well, you should have moved somewhere where you could do it. Well, they told her she could do it. Who'd she talk to? She talked to the government. She talked to people that enforce code. And they said it was okay. And they said, well, no, it's not really okay. So you got to make sure when you find those truly rural properties that you have that kind of freedom. Next, the other type of land that would be, I would call full-on farmland. 
whether it's currently agricultural or it's just kind of was agricultural, still zoned that way. But it's, you know, it's acreage. It's five acres or more. A lot of times you're looking at 20, 40-acre plots like this. You got a lot of times there's an old farmhouse in need of major repair. A lot of times these land, what they're doing now, they're just growing hay and just to maintain their ag exemption. A lot of times they're not even selling the hay. They put a couple of bales out by the front driveway. So when the ag guy comes around from the county to check, says, yeah, they're growing hay, that type of thing. Full-on farmland has a lot of advantages. One of the things that you need to know, though, is if it's truly zoned agriculture, there's a couple things. One, you're not going to be able to go get your FHA, uh, you know, Fannie Mae uh, government loan. You're going to have to get what's called an ag loan. And it, it really isn't a lot harder, but it is a different process, and it's a little harder for some people to qualify to buy. The next thing is you're going to need to maintain the ag status, or you can end up on the hook for the prior taxes when it was exempt. The next thing is because of all this, if you decide you don't want it and you want to sell it, you have less people that are able to buy it, therefore it limits your market. Those are the kind of the big gotchas to look at there. So you, you need to really look, and you need it, if it's farmland and it, it really needs to be farmed uh, for one reason or another, you need to ask yourself, do I want to be a farmer? Do I really want to be a farmer? You might be better off with a truly rural property with a bit of acreage where you can grow stuff where you want to instead of have a full-on farm that has to be maintained and have some sort of deal with the government. Now, it might be great. You might have a huge piece of land. You might have a beautiful place to build a house. You might be able to easily maintain that ag exemption. You might be able to do almost anything you want out there and be left the hell alone, but you need to make sure that is indeed the case. The next what we have is what I call really remote land. What I, when I say something's remote, it would be at, it would be more remote than my property in Arkansas was. And let me tell you a little bit about that property. When you came off the main road, you, you, you saw some mailboxes. That's where my mailbox was. That mailbox was six miles from my house. About three miles of it was some pretty bad, poorly maintained blacktop road, and the last three miles was gravel and dirt and rock. And every single person that came out there made the same joke. Man, I was kind of worried. I started hearing banjo music, right? So you think that's a remote property. I would call it truly rural property because I had neighbors that, I mean, I had one neighbor uh, 100 yards down the road. I had one neighbor. I could never see her. Because of the way the land laid, but she was, I mean, I could throw a rock hard enough and probably hit her house. Then I had another neighbor up the road about 150 yards, and had two neighbors up the road about another 150 yards, about 300 yards up the road. And then I had one around the backside. And town, you know, the town of Hot Springs was 10 minutes away. So to me, that was rural, but it wasn't remote. When I say remote, I mean that when you're going to go to the store, it is a one-hour proposition or more. I mean that you got to go look to find your neighbors. There's some around probably, but you got to look for them. I mean that you're trying to figure out, and if I have kids, I'm probably going to have to homeschool because there may not be an option otherwise. That's what I mean when I say very remote. Very remote. You still got to check. You'd think there's no restrictions. There still might be some department of making you sad bullshit to deal with. And you really got to think about things like medical needs as you age the life your kids are going to have. If you want to have a Robinson Crusoe life, that's fine, but do they really? Happiness of a spouse? 
And another thing is difficulty in selling the property. You have a lot less prospective buyers than any of the other options. Then we have the one I've saved for last that I'm, I'm a big fan of. And you might imagine it's what I bought. It's what I call the urban-rural fringe. You are rural, but you are on the edge of the urban-suburban lifestyle. So that all of the things that you might want from that lifestyle are available, but they don't interfere with your life when you're at home. There's a danger here, and I'm cognizant of the danger that I have. A lot of these areas are in danger long-term of being annexed by one of the towns, townships, etc. The key is trying to find a place where it really wouldn't be worth it to them to do it. There's not that many houses. They're only worth so much money. And there's maybe a lot of low-end stuff around it. Hopefully that doesn't affect you. But if they take it, they get that too. And now they've got to provide services to all that crap, and they don't have much revenue out of it. It's kind of like perfect what we found here. That's why you guys hear me bitch about the rock, and you're like, well, if the place is that rocky, Jack, why'd you buy it? Because being left the F alone was more important to me than whether or not I could dig a 20-foot hole. Because I'm like, I work with this, but at least they'll leave me alone. And, and the odds that they're going to change that are very low, and it's not like we don't have the ability to fight back. And I had met people that lived here, and there was a sentiment that thou shall not cross this line. To hither thou have come, and thou shall come no further. We're, this, we're not part of y'all. We don't want to be part of you guys. You know, if I talk to the neighbors, like, well, if it ever happens, it happens. I'm like, oh, shit, no. Got to move a little further out. But that urban rural fringe, it has so many advantages for the homesteader that wants to do something to make a profit. Because I have a market of over 6 million people within two hours of this place. And yet I can do whatever I want. So to me, it's the sweet spot. It's not. I'm not saying go do this. I'm saying it is a sweet spot, and it's something to consider when you're looking. And when you see it, you'll know it. Then we need to start thinking about the things that are important to you beyond the property itself. We talked a little bit about this already, but neighbors. Are you the kind of person that wants neighbors, or the kind of person that doesn't want neighbors? And you might be the kind of person that doesn't really want neighbors, but do you want your kids to have friends? you got to think about that. I mean, I lived in different types of communities as my son grew up, that were more suburban, you know, urban-rural fringe, but still more of a neighborhood. And I'm glad I did when my son was young. Because the fact that he could come home, go out and play with his friends, all his friends could come to our house. We had a, Like when we lived in Pennsylvania, we had a refrigerator downstairs. We kept it stocked with sodas and snacks and shit like that. And the kids would always be at our house. The other parents were like, why do you always let them here? Because if they're here, they're not causing no trouble. Because if they're here, I know what's going on. Because if they're here, they're talking, and if they're talking some bullshit that they're not supposed to be doing, they forget that I'm here, and I hear it, and I can intervene and let y'all know. I'm totally willing to have them here. I thought it was a blessing to have them there. And it's a lot easier when the friends are walking distance. So that's something to consider. Also, some people just really like neighborhoods. And there's people who have done some pretty amazing homesteading. There's one area in California, of all places, where the place is kind of a little bit run down. A whole bunch of people moved in the neighborhood. They all bought houses adjacent to each other. I think like six homes got bought. And they redid the fencing on the outside of all the houses, and they took down all the cross fencing. So it's six houses with a giant courtyard. And everybody kind of lives you know, a little bit communally that way. I don't want to do that, but I can see the appeal. 
So neighbors are an important consideration, including like, I don't want neighbors that can tell me what the hell to do with myself. See, I'm the other way around now. I don't have a son to, to raise anymore. I have grandkids. They come here and they go home. So I love that my grandson can come home, run straight around the house, not even go into it, grab his baseball shit and start whacking balls in the backyard, and then pick up a stick and go fight with trees. I love that. But if, I, if he was going to live here, Maybe, maybe not. It all depends on where I'm at in life, how much income I have, etc. For a lot of people, church is really important. I'm not a church-going guy. It ain't going to happen. If I go to church, somebody's getting married or buried. Okay, just to be completely blunt. Or I'm doing a favor for somebody, and you better be a very special person for me to do that favor for you. All right, so but that's not important to me, but it might be to you. There are people that their life centers around their church. Just because it's not me does not mean I don't respect it and appreciate it. So that's something that if you go too rural or too far out, it may be difficult to find. Or you may find that if you're if your particular faith, domination, etc., that there's only one option. And then the problem with that is, you know, a lot of people say, well, whatever, it's church. Okay, if that's you, that's fine. But for a lot of people, you know, their church becomes extended family. Uh, there's a lot of things that they do. My brother-in-law... Uh, is very involved with like the youth groups in their church. He takes the kids on mission trips and stuff. You know, so to them, they would they would want to be able to find a place that everybody felt comfortable. So you got to think about that. Community culture. What is the culture like in this place? How do people act? How do people see things? Like you, we just talked about church. Let me tell you how church people are. There's two different types of church people. There's people they go to church and they love it, and they'll certainly invite you to come. And if you don't, you don't. And they go on their way, and they're fine. Then there's the other kind. There's the kind that will never stop asking you to go. And if you don't go, something's wrong with you. And they'll never leave you alone about it. And they think, man, something's bad if they won't go to church. I don't want to live around those people. If you go to church, you probably don't even care. You know? But if you don't, And you're, it's a culture that's like that in a particular area. It may not be socially happy for you. You may have, have a hard time you know, creating relationships with friends. Where I lived in Arkansas, it was almost like that, but it wasn't. It was, they'll ask you, but they didn't have a problem when you didn't go. And they would push once in a while, you'd have to say, listen. And I figured out the thing, that they, these people were all diehard Baptists, And I just told them that we were Methodists, and they and the old man was like, "Well, that's pretty good." And they let me go. They stopped bothering me. It's like, "Well, that's good enough." I don't know, you know. So you gotta, you know, you gotta think about the. And I'm just that's not the only thing to zero in on. And if you're one of these people that church is a big deal, don't be offended by this. But different people have different ways of viewing the world, and they have different ways of viewing their community. And what I'm saying is that's just one example. If you realize that the community culture around where you are is extremely liberal and you're a very conservative person, that may or may not work. You may or may not be able to go along and get along. right? If the community culture is very anti-gun and you're a hunter, it might be that I just don't want to be surrounded by these people. Or you might not care. It all depends on the way that culture manifests itself. Or you may find yourself in the opposite position. Right, So looking at the community culture. Another thing that's really important to people is shopping. And I'm not necessarily talking about going out and buying Gucci bags. But, you know, my wife is not a big shopper. But, you know, once a month or two, she wants to go out and just have a shopping day. 
And one of the things she really didn't like about Hot Springs, Arkansas, there wasn't a lot of options for that other than Walmart. And when she says she wants to go out and do something like that, she doesn't even want to spend a lot of money. She wants to go look at shit. You know, and spend a little bit of money. Well, Walmart's not what she's talking about. So shopping from that standpoint, but also shopping from the procurement of your daily, your daily bread, your supplies. You know, as far as just your grocery stores and stuff like that. You, you, you've got to think because there are places where, and this is what you're going to find. It might seem really inexpensive to live in a place, but there's only one big grocery store within 30 minutes of your house. I bet you you're going to pay more for your groceries because that's how, that's how markets work. When you have less options, you pay more money. So think, you have to think about shopping. Medical facilities. This is a one that a lot of people like, you know, 30, 40 years old, just, ah, 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 I'll die when I die. Man, as we get older, we find that we need medical care a lot more. And sometimes we may end up needing, like, regular medical treatments of some kind or something like that. So it's something to at least consider. You know, what type of hospitals are in the area? What type of doctors are in the area? How far do you have to go for that? You know, if you've got cancer... Is there even a place that could provide you your treatment within, you know, a couple hours? Some places there isn't. I know people that are, you know, that are living in West Texas, but they're going to San Antonio or Houston to get cancer treatments. So medical facilities at least look at the options and availability of that. If you have kids, schools. Now, I often find it funny. I've talked to people whenever I'm up in New Hampshire at Liberty Forum. And, the, the, you know, you'll end up with some visitor there that's not part of that. What are y'all doing? And we'll tell them, like, yeah, well, I live down in Massachusetts because the schools are better. And my response is, better at what? You know, and they'll blah, 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 test scores, blah, 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 whatever. I'm like, you mean they're better at indoctrination? You know, <laughs> they're better at teaching conformity? What, what exactly are they better at? Uh, so I, I'm not big on the whole government school bandwagon, but I'm going to tell you that when my son was of school age, Homeschooling probably really wasn't an option for us. I didn't really even understand it, so I don't know what adjustments we could have made. But in the end, like that was a decision I made. Many of y'all might even love the idea of it, but in the end, you're gonna you're gonna send your kid off to school. So you do need to know not just are the schools good, but where are they, and are they bad? See, I don't really think that one school is necessarily that much better than the other if they're both good, unless there's something specific like. Some of the, to be fair, some of like the new tech schools and stuff that they have built into these high schools are pretty impressive. So if there's like a really good program that's a Votech type program your kid wants to go to, that might be. But you know, like they both teach English. Your kids are going to forget all that shit anyway once they go off and, you know, they're not going to be diagramming. Dude, what was the last time as a 26 year old person anybody diagrammed a freaking sentence, right? Or did complex calculus unless they're an engineer? So I think that schools that are okay and good are generally good enough. But when they're bad, they're bad. If you find out that your kid's going to be going to a school where they don't just have a school resource officer because everybody does now, but because they're taking kids to jail two or three times a week, you may want to avoid that area. I would say if it was me, I would go so far as if once I'm considering a specific area that I'd want to see the school, see the facilities, talk to the principals, etc. Find out if there's any really stupid programs. Because you don't live there yet. It's not your problem yet. So let's not make a problem while we're trying to correct other problems. The next thing you're going to have to look at is job options. Now, if you work for yourself or something like that, then it doesn't really matter. If you can work remote, it doesn't really matter. We'll talk about that more in a bit. 
But if you still have to work a nine-to-five job, or even if, like, let's say that you have a business kind of like I do where you can do it from anywhere, but it's not enough to provide the income for the whole family so a spouse has to work, well, now we have to at least worry about their job options. You want to make sure that, like, the best job you can get you know, isn't cleaning up tables down at Tony's Deli for just over minimum wage because if that's all there is, that's all there is. And a lot of times people have certain specialties, and that means they're really highly marketable but only in certain areas. So we have to balance the job options as well. And then most importantly, going through all of this, unless you live alone, family needs and wants. It's not all about you. It's about your kids, and it's about your spouse. And I put those in two totally different categories. I cared a lot about my son when we were growing up, but if there were certain things he just didn't want, on some levels, tough. You know, well, I'm gonna when we moved, oh, I'm gonna lose my friends. So you'll make new ones. And the right choice was to move, so we moved. My spouse, I'm gonna grow old and die with my spouse. My son will always be my son, but my son's destiny was always to grow up and move out. This is something married couples really need to understand. You always choose your spouse, unless your spouse is abusing your child or something like that. You always choose your spouse because you're going to grow old together, hold each other's hands. One of you is probably going to hold the other one's hand while they die. That is the commitment you made to each other unless your marriage falls apart. Your child will leave you, and they're supposed to, and go find their own person who they will live with long enough that one of them will hold the other's hand when they die. Okay? So that means that when it comes down to my family's needs and wants, I care what my kids want, but I care a little bit more, I'm sorry if that offends anybody, what my wife wants. And, and that actually is one of the keys to a strong marriage. And these types of moves can strengthen a family or weaken it. And you don't want to weaken the family. So you really need to not be moving against the wishes of your spouse. You need buy-in. And not tacit buy-in, like I'll do this to make them happy. They need to be an active participant in the hunt. They need to be excited as well. They need to be on the list of things you have to have, that you must have, you want, nice to have. They also need to be on the list of things that we absolutely do not want. And unless we can balance that, it will probably make things worse to move. Next, let's talk about making the move. Number one, use your checklist. Go through that checklist. You can get romantic about a property and so, you know, it's a beautiful view or something. Don't forget why you're doing it. So whenever you find a potential property, go through the checklist and, and tick off the boxes. And when you say something is, I've got to have it, and it's got everything except one of those things, that's time for a gut check. Do you really got to have that? Are there enough on the nice, like you can move over from the, I really want it, but I don't have to have it, but there's ten of those things that you get. And you give up one that you thought was, I must have it. Can you live with that? The only way to make these decisions, see, I'm back to with real estate. You must be a Vulcan when real estate's involved. There's nothing people get more emotional about than buying property. They get panicked. I remember when my wife and I bought our first property. We put in an offer. They accepted it. We did it with earnest money. We had a contract and a closing date. And then we were excited because it was our first house together. So, And it was only like a mile from where we were living in an apartment. So we'd drive by once in a while to look at it. And they didn't take the sign down for sale, which is a good contingency. 
It's a good. I mean, when, if I'm a real estate agent, I don't want to even put up a sold sign on a house. And when somebody calls me about, it, I'll say, "Well, it's sold, but it's pending under contract. You can take a look at it. I can show you something else." So she kept on. They can't buy our house, can I? Like she would get really worried we're going to lose it. Like we have a contract. We have a we have a guaranteed we our mortgage letter and all. We're good. But you get emotional about it, and that's just natural because we fall in love with property. If we're not using that checklist, that romance can get in the way of the entire thing that we're doing in the first place. Next, you really if you're moving more than across town or across county, you really need to visit and learn the place. You need to walk through the stores. You need to look at people, the way that they interact with each other. You need to walk through a neighborhood if you're going to consider living in that neighborhood. You need to talk to neighbors. If you're moving into a truly rural property, but where there's people around, you need to talk to the people that are going to be your neighbors and make sure they're not going to be a problem. Better to know in advance. We're thinking of moving here. What's the place like? You don't have to you know, tell them your life story, but you know, it's amazing what you'll learn about people in a five-minute conversation especially in that situation. So really visit and learn the place. Don't just go because you saw a brochure. Shop and shop and shop. And I don't mean at stores. I mean for property, on and offline. Once you've kind of zeroed in on an area, you need to look at every property that comes up for sale in that neighborhood or that area or that zip code or that county or whatever the hell search radius you have, including the stuff you would never buy and or can't afford. So stuff that's too cheap, And to run down, and you just you still watch it. And how long does it take to get sold? Who you know, and that type of thing will teach you so much about that market that you become an educated buyer. Because we're going to be patient. That's the next thing. We're going to be patient. We're going to be patient till the deal is right, and we're going to get the right deal. And the only way we know that is by understanding the market that we're buying in, not the market we think we're buying in. I had to pull myself back a little bit when we moved from Pennsylvania back to Texas. Because all of a sudden, every house I looked at, even when I was like, I'm not going to buy that house, I thought, that's a good deal. That's a good deal. That's a good deal. Well, why? Because houses were a hell of a lot more expensive where I lived in Pennsylvania than they were in Texas. What you pay $250 for in Pennsylvania back at the time, anyway, you could buy in Texas for about $140. And I'd lived up there for three years, and I hadn't spent a lot of time back down here anymore, and I kind of forgot. I had a good agent. It's probably the only good real estate agent I've ever had in all the houses I've bought and sold. Every other one, I had to do their job for them. I guess I got a good one the time I really needed it. And she was good. But you got to make sure that you're patient and you're shopping long enough to become informed in the market. And that, you got to be prepared to walk away from any deal. One of the reasons I've gotten such screaming deals on my property is I let the other party know, listen, this is the last offer. I will, in fact, walk away. And when you've educated yourself as a buyer and you find the right property and you find the property that has a few little things that are keeping it from selling, they're not really deal breakers for you, but they are for the average buyer. And that property's been on the market for 90 to 120 days or something like that, and you're arguing over the last couple thousand bucks, they're going to crack because all they got to do is go another 90 days, and they're in the hole from where they would be right now. And if there ain't a line of people waiting to buy, they're going to cave. So we're going to be patient and prepared to walk away. And the next thing is there is no such thing as an offer that's too low. There is no such thing as an offer that's too low. 
people say, well, that'll be insulting to them. They'll never sell you the house then. Bullshit. Now, I, of all the times I've talked about real estate, I had one person write me in with an example of somebody got so ass hurt that even when they offered more money for the house, person still said no. And I can't even verify that that's truthful. Generally speaking, I don't even know who the hell offered to buy my house. When we sold our house in Arkansas, somebody came in with an offer that was, for me, too low. Like, and, and my agent, who didn't know what the F she was doing, like most of them, said, well, we need to counter. I said, where the hell am I going to counter at? They're so low, there's nothing to counter at. So if you want to counter, counter at the list price. Now, a week later, we sold the property for within $500 of the listing price. Okay? It, it wasn't even, we actually sold it for the listing price, but I gave them 500 bucks for a few things I didn't want to fix. That I actually didn't even think needed to be fixed, but it didn't give you 500 to closing share, whatever. No problem. For all I know, that was the same person. It probably wasn't, but it probably was. You think I was going to tell them no? You always can lowball an offer. You can, and when they, if they say, well, we're not countering, you can counter. Well, we'll do this. It doesn't, you know, when I was training salespeople, and I'd get a group of people together for a, a group training, I'd say I want everybody to stand up and face another person in this room. Okay. Now I want everybody on the right to look at the person on the left side of the room and say no to them. And they'd all say no. And I'd say, okay, I want the other people who didn't do it to say no to the person who said you. Just tell them no. No. And I'd say, okay, everybody look at yourself. And you start like, no, look really close. Look at your arms. Like, look at each other. Look at your legs, your feet, whatever. And they're like all free. Okay, is anybody bleeding? Is anybody bleeding? No. Does anybody have uh, heart palpitations? Does anybody have a, a freaking head problems, a dizzy, uh, inability to stand, uh, retching, uh, vomiting? Anybody got a serious illness? Did anybody get cancer from that? No. Okay, good. So you don't need to be afraid of hearing no. It was a really good way to make a point with salespeople. Like, no's are gold. The more no's you get, the more yeses you'll eventually get. Get out and sell. Well, it, the same thing applies to real estate. It will not, you will not bleed, you will not die, and you will not get cancer because you lowballed an offer and the seller said no. It doesn't hurt nothing. Every once in a while, they say yes, or by lowballing, they counter at something that you would have been happy to do in the first place, but you started out lower, so you got a better deal. So make sure you understand that as well. And understand the last thing. I think there's people that are afraid to make this leap Because what if it doesn't work out? Well, if you can sell a property and move to one, you can sell a property and move back to where you were. Maybe you don't get the same house back, but you can go home again. You can change your mind. I've owned six houses with my wife. At one time, we owned two at a time. But in total, we've owned six houses. We've made five major moves. We survived every one of them. Some of them weren't the funnest but we eventually found what we really needed and what really worked for us, not just for me. The Arkansas place really worked for me. It didn't work for her. The suburban property that we had before we moved up to Arkansas really worked for her. It didn't work for me. But now that we live here, and she had that experience, she really loved some things about it. It was family, missing family that made it hard. Now that we live here, I've asked her, could you see us ever living in the suburbs again? She's like, hell no. Never. 
So you can take this journey and you can find what works for everybody. Here's some things that expand your options. Number one, building on raw land. That does give you more options. But it ain't always easy and it doesn't always save money. To me, if I'm going to build a place, I'd rather have a place where there was a house and it's just it's gone. But there's infrastructure. You know, Either there's a well or there's city water availability, sewer, septic. Kind of the perfect one. Rural property, guy put a single wide trailer on it 45 years ago, and all it's got to have happen is it's got to be drug away. And the guy knows that the trailer ain't worth nothing but scrap. Raw land like that, that means that there's utilities. Or, you know, if you're going off grid, that's a totally different thing, and we're just going to leave that out in left field today. You, you make that call on your own. Um, but it is an option, and it does make, it does allow you to look at more things, especially if it's not, that's my only option. I am open to that. That opens things. Next, owning a business or the ability to work remote. And one of the things that you might want to work on if you're not going to be an entrepreneur, and again, I am cognizant of entrepreneurship is not right for everybody, is getting yourself into the position where you're able to work remote. We've talked about that a lot in the past, so I won't go through it a lot today, but is there a skill you can add that opens up greater numbers of employers? Is there a way to talk to your current employer about working home from two or three days a week? Because I had what I called the vanishing employee uh, strategy when I used to have a job. And that was I made a deal that I could work from home Mondays and Fridays. And I was there Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And then I just didn't ever go see my boss. And I didn't go to meetings unless I absolutely needed to. And so if I needed something from my boss, I picked up my desk phone and I called him or I sent him an email. If, and when I did go see my boss, we were having a beer after work. If I needed to talk to somebody in the next cubicle, I would call them on the phone. To the point where that's just what he does. And then I just started not showing. I never got any approval. I just stopped showing up on Wednesdays. And all of a sudden, everybody used to assume, well, Jack only works here two days a week. You better see him then if you want to see him. And had that company not gotten bought out like it did and I decided to go somewhere else, I would have eventually just not showed up anymore. Or maybe showed up one day a week. And because I was getting the job done, and because I can get away with shit, because I am who I am, it would have worked. The Wednesday thing worked perfectly. I mean, like, it literally no one even blinked. So you, you got to be creative, and not everybody can be that ballsy and get away with it. But if you can get yourself to a position where you can work from home, it is so liberating, and it gives you the ability, basically, you're, you may end up where I was. All I gotta have is DSL or cable modem or fiber or something for high speed internet, and as long as I got that, I can live anywhere. Now your options are wide open. Um, again, I talked about it already, but being patient. Once you have the money, the list, the buy-in, you start to feel like somebody does when they get a big check and they got money burning a hole in their pocket. Don't do it. Stay patient. That way you will find the right place. Another one is something we've kind of had as a theme through this whole show is looking closer to where you are now. You might find that if you tell your wife you want to move out of California, that she is totally opposed to it. But if you want to move an hour away and you're the one with the long drive to work and you're willing to do it and she starts seeing properties and what you could have, she might be all over it. You might be the person that says, I just don't want to not be able to see my friends and family. And you might find, you know what, if i got to drive an hour to see them, 
I can still see them whenever I want to, but I don't have to see them when I don't want to. Right? That's another. So all of a sudden, when you start thinking about that urban rural fringe, when you start thinking about here's just all the stuff I don't want, and boy, I can get most of the things I want within an hour here. It gets easier to do it. Maybe it's not crossing a state line. Maybe it's just to move down the road a little bit. Next, if you can be a cash buyer or have heavy cash equity position going in, you are going to get financing or you're not going to need it. And when you are a buyer and you go to someone that's been trying to sell a house for a while, especially, and if you have an agent who is just not even good, just capable of doing what you ask them to do, If you can find a property that's been on the market for a while, somebody agreed to buy it and the deal fell through, and you walk in with cash with a low ball offer but say, I'll close tomorrow or next week or whenever you want to, I will bring you Benjamins, you have so much opportunity to close that deal because they're starting to do the math on how much every month of still holding on to that property is costing them. If you're just heavy on cash equity so that you're able to walk in and maybe you're doing a 50% down deal, that buyer, if they know that, and if your real estate agent isn't, complete, you know, isn't a complete idiot, they're going to convey that information. Right? We don't just have a letter that says they're a qualified buyer. we got a buyer that's putting 50% down on the property. Then they know you're going to close by the date you're asking to close by. And either one of those gives you a lot of power. It also allows you to buy down the mortgage, and that means that you can afford more house. So I'm not necessarily for pumping a bunch of money into a house. Interest rates are still low enough that I'd rather have the money in my 401k plan than in the house and go ahead and pay the 3% on the house in, in a lot of situations. But I'm also buying houses well within my means. That if anything ever came down to the shit where like I just got to do it, I could probably write a check and pay it off, right? So, but that gives you a lot. And then if you're willing to rough it, at least at first, it gives you a lot of options. That might be because you're willing to build. I've got a friend right now, a couple. They're a good friend of the family. They're living on some land they were able to buy. Fortunately, when things were a little bit better for them financially, um, they decided to move out there. They're living in a trailer. Uh, not a mobile home, like an RV-type trailer. Um, they have to take their clothes to the laundromat. The guy is kind of handy. He also is disabled, and he has a guaranteed income, but it's not a lot of money, but that means he has a lot of time, and he's slowly building up the infrastructure and things like that. They're going to build a home, etc. But it's hard, and when we talk to him about it, I can hear in their voice that it's hard. And let me tell you something, living in an RV ain't easy. And living in an RV in Texas in the summer is hard. Right? So, I mean, there's, there's a case for roughing it, but in general, it's more of a younger man's game. But sometimes it's what it takes. And if you're able to do it, at least at first, it expands your options. Just be sure. And I'll tell you what, when I was 21 years old, before I met my wife, and I was just out of the Army, I could have lived like that and had a great time. It wouldn't have bothered me at all. I wouldn't even have tried to do it with Dorothy and Matthew. 
I mean, just there's just no way that I would even try to do it with Dorothy and Matthew. So let's kind of wrap up here. I want to just finish with this. No, this isn't for everyone. Um, there's some questions you need to ask. I mean, first of all, a lot of you have already done it, and you're happy where you are. So moving now, it's more about, you know, the, I think the, those, those of you that are that, I mean, what you probably got out of today is how do I make what I have better? So it, it it's really... It's really a question that everybody should be asking before you make a decision to do this. Now, I know there's some people who are just like, I'm getting the hell out of here. And I understand that. But we do need to be asking that question, how can I have more of what I want where I'm at? I mean, that's if we're not willing to look at that first, we're probably going to make a bad decision. And then I want to reiterate, I might just need to move a few miles or perhaps 20-ish miles. And, and what I want to say in that is driving won't kill you. I've talked to some people. I'm like, you are the biggest damn baby on the planet. The biggest baby on the planet. Well, I'll have to drive 30 minutes to work. Shut up! Most people drive further than that. You don't live in Texas, I'll tell you that right now. Everything's 30 minutes or more in Texas, unless you live across the street. It still might take you that long to get there if you insist on taking your car. Um... I spent the majority of my working life, unless I was working at home, with more than a one-hour drive to and from work. It didn't make me happy, but to have the life I wanted, I was willing to do it. And I don't know, maybe this is a little bit of my old school mentality, but especially you men, shut up and do what needs to be done and take care of your flipping family. I've heard people say, well, you know, right now I only have to drive 15 minutes to work, and I could get a better job and more money, but I have to drive 30 or 35 minutes. Oh, my God. Go say that while you punch yourself in the face looking at yourself in the mirror until you get over your problem. Driving won't kill you. Now, I also just spent an entire show talking about getting what you want in life. So if you really don't want to drive, then you need to design that into your life. But I wouldn't let extending my commute interfere with having what I want. You know, I mean, if you can if you can make everybody happy, have most of what you want, all of what you need, and what you have to give up for it is an extra 40 minutes a day driving until you figure out something to do with yourself professionally differently, uh, that's a deal I'd be willing to make. Um, do you need to get more things in order before you do this? This was something that when Dorothy and I decided... We were going to move to the Arkansas place. See, we already had a place. We already knew where we would go. But we realized there were certain things that we wanted to have finished before we left. One was we weren't leaving until my son was out of school and and and, and moved out and, and all that. So we worked with him to help him find his first apartment and all that. This is just one example. But we had also decided that, you know, I would, even though I'd gotten to the point where I knew I could do this full time, that I would stay six more months at my job which is really a partnership in a business I was working in. And then when I got to the point where I was ready to walk away, the owner and my business partner asked me if I would stay six more months. I told him I want to leave. He said, I, I need you to do something for me. I've been good to you. Uh, I've given you a lot of opportunity here. I understand you want to go, go, go off on your own, but can you do this for me? And I've talked about it before, so I won't talk about what he had me do, but I, I, I did my best for him for six more months. And to me, that was important. And that relationship is still intact, and I believe in large part because I was willing to spend that six more months. And that pushed everything back six more months. 
but it was what we needed to do to have things in order, not just so we could execute it, but so that we could execute it and feel good about it in the way that we dealt with other people and the way we left our son, etc. And it's similar when we decided to come back. My wife's father started to have issues with Alzheimer's dementia. Um, we wanted to get back, but we also knew what we wanted when we came back. We didn't want to rush back. And it took us eight months to find the property we have. We were patient. And I just got her here as much as she needed to be here to be okay. To the point of if you need to go down there for a week without me, go. And it was important that in both instances that we had things set up to do it right and right by ourselves and right by others. And then it's going to come back to what do you really want. But there's a reason that I do shows like this to get you thinking this way. And it's simple. I talk about making the most of your dash. You're your born in the year that you die, and they put a dash in the middle, you know, in your epitaph, your obituary. But some about that dash. Unless something horrifically tragic happens, when you're like five years old, that dash is huge. It's huge. It's so big you can't even see both ends of it. If you're standing in the middle of your dash at that point, sure it's not the way they write it, but metaphorically, if you were five years old, You were standing in the middle of your dash. You look to the left. Ah, it ends right over there. That's only you know, five years ago. That's about a half mile down the road. I can see the end of it. You look the other way at your dash. At that point, a five-year-old speck of your dash. And you're going to leave to be 70, 80 years old. You can't see the end of your dash. It goes on for damn near ever. At least apparently at that point. Your dash is shrinking. Your dash is getting smaller. It's harder to realize that when you're 20 than when you're 30. And it's a lot harder to realize when you're 30 than when you're 40. But whether you realize it or not, that dash is shrinking. It will run out. If what you really want is something else, somewhere else, and it ain't just about where you live. If it's a relationship, if it's having something in your life that you just really want to have in your life, if it's a better job, no matter what it is, Don't wait forever, because it will run out. I'll always, I'll always say, the way that you know whether or not your mission on this planet is over is simple. If you can still fog a mirror, you're not done yet. But opportunities do pass. And you're not going to be able to do some of the things you want to do now when you're 90 if you're still here. You're just not. And opportunities also have to be built. So there's, there's a middle ground, and that's what I was talking about in the last bullet point here. Yes, the dash is shrinking, but also if the time's not right, the time's not right. So we need to build the opportunity with a sense of urgency because we know the dash is shrinking. And that's the best advice that I can give you on all of this. Well, those are my final thoughts. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'd love to hear from some of you guys that have made the move and some of you guys that are planning to make the move. And you know a great way to do that? Make it part of episode 2500. Call the jerk line. Come on, you know you want to be on episode episode 2500. Call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. That's not the think line, it's the jerk line, 877-644-1345. You call that number and you say, hey, Jack, you're a jerk because. And tell me about all the good things in your life. And it happens to be that you've moved to a new property. 
let me know about that. Let's make episode 2500 epic. I think, you know, I put 11 years into it, guys. Let's make it epic. And you can be part of it just by calling that number. Again, 877-644-1345. Tell me the good things in your life because of TSP and our communities and sub-communities. And make sure you let me know I'm a jerk because of it. It should be a lot of fun. Next up, if you want to help support this show, like the easiest way you can do that, just so simple, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, no matter what you eventually buy, you help support the show and the work that we do. But you can also see all the things that I've reviewed, alphabetical and categorized as well. And if it's there, I own it, I bought it, spent my money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to. Today's item of the day is the Anova Sous Vide Precision Cooker. I love this thing. I love sous vide cooking. I didn't think I would. I was a resistant person. How the hell are you going to cook a steak with water? I didn't understand. Now I am a 100% convert to sous vide. But if you remember, I just featured this about two months ago, so why bring it back so fast? Well, every once in a while I go through some of my favorite items and I just check Amazon and say, hey, are they on sale? Because if they're on sale, I want you to know about it. They're on sale today. The uh, Network Sous Vide Cooker from Anova is on sale for $153 bucks versus $199 normal price. It's 23% off. And the Nano model, which is Bluetooth only, is normally $99. It's selling for $78 bucks with a discount of about 20%. Last time this happened, I said I'm going to buy one of the Nanos just to have a second cooker because uh, it's kind of nice, to, and I never did. I'm going to do it this time. That's a, that's a heck of a deal. And that, you, you know, you can get a sous vide cooker for 70, 60 to 80 bucks. You can do that. Anova is one of the top premium brands. And when it says 132 degrees, that freaking water is 132 degrees. It's absolutely precise and it works and it keeps working. I've had mine for a couple years now. I love it. I think you will too. Check it out. But remember, you can be buying anything. If you're going to buy something online, Just go to T-SPAS first, and no matter what it is, you help support us and the work that we do. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. We are in a Steve Miller Band week, and we are going to sing. Or We're not going to sing. I damn well ain't going to sing. Y'all don't want to hear that. Some of y'all have heard me sing karaoke. It is not pretty. But we're going to listen to one of Steve Miller Band's greatest hits, Jet Airliner. Now, there's an interesting thing about this song, and that's the guy that actually wrote it. It's not, no real direct connection to Steve Miller. The song was actually written by a guy named Paul Pena. He was a blind folk singer from Cape Cod. Pena played the Newport Folk Festival in 69, but was unable to launch a successful career. And then for much of his life, his royalties from writing this one-hit song were his only income. By the way, the radio version substitutes the line, Funky Kicks Going Down in the City for funky shit going down in the city. Anyway, this is a cool song, and it's kind of perfect for today. Because we're talking about going somewhere else, doing something else. But I don't think a lot of people realize what this song is all about. I think because it was written by a rock band, that people kind of just look at it as another one of these songs about being on the road. This song's about taking a risk, right? Goodbye to all my friends at home. Goodbye to people I've trusted. I've got to go get out and make my way. I might get rich, you know, I might get busted. But my heart keeps calling me backwards as I get on the 707. Riding high, I've got tears in my eyes. You know, you've got to go, to thro go through hell before you get to heaven. 
touching down in a New England town. Feel the heat coming down. I've got to keep on keeping on. You know, the big wheel keeps on spinning around, and I'm going with some hesitation. You know that I can surely see that I don't want to get caught up in that funky shit going down in the city. This is, like, really a perfect song for today. A lot of times John's songs that he picks just work perfectly with the show. And I want you to think about something. This guy that wrote the song, um, again, his name Paul Pena. You might think, well, he went and took his shot, and he didn't make it. But because he took his shot, he wrote this song. The Steve Miller Band played it. And he ended up with an income that supported him through most of his life because he took the shot. That's what today's show is all about. The dash keeps getting smaller. Make sure you take your shot. Take as many shots as you need to until you get what you're looking for. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.